Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode in the practice management sector that's focused on your how to best interact with your non-op providers in your practice. And many orthopedic practices include non-op providers, physiatrists, non-opera sports doctors, even rheumatologists, and maximizing interactions with these collaborators can really improve your ability to care for patients. So discussed, I've invited two of my partners here at the University of Utah. And first, we have Dr. Joy English. I've known Dr. English English now for about a decade across three hospital systems. She was an ER doc before completing a primary care sports medicine fellowship here at the University of Utah. Dr. English, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, next, we have Dr. Dan Cushman, who's trained in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and he has some subspecialty fellowship training in sports medicine, and he has his expertise in ultrasound and sees a lot of our athletes here at the University of Utah. Dr. Cushman, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, too. So let's start at the beginning. So, Joy, tell us, how did you get interested in this field? How did, how did you come to the, to, to, to the, the practice you have right now? That's a great question. So actually, when I entered medical school, I uh, had two career paths in mind. One was obstetrics and the second was sports medicine (laughs) Um, and ultimately uh, ended up pursuing a career in sports medicine uh, after doing an emergency medicine residency Um, in between emergency medicine residency and sports medicine fellowship. um, I had an idea about completing a an ultrasound fellowship through emergency medicine. And my fellowship director at that time was a pretty wonderful guy um, and knew that ultimately I wasn't going to practice emergency ultrasound. And he said, as long as you can kind of complete the requirements for emergency ultrasound fellowship, um, whenever you're done completing those requirements, you can just study sports medicine or, or musculoskeletal ultrasound. So ultimately did emergency ultrasound for maybe six months or so and then was able to kind of immerse myself in musculoskeletal ultrasound uh, at Cook County and at Rush, and then ended up doing sports fellowship here at University of Utah, and decided that uh, following fellowship, I would just do sports medicine um, with a bigger focus in ultrasound. What about you, Dan? Um, I had a kind of a (coughs) circuitous route where I worked as an engineer for a few years, wasn't my thing, Um, and then decided to go to med school. And I actually was always leaning towards um, the non-operative side of sports medicine and um, ended up following that and um, ended up going to residency in Chicago did my sports fellowship out here in Utah and then stayed on. And um, at least for me, the aspects that I kind of liked most were just the musculoskeletal side of things. Um, And I've got a kind of particular interest in nerves and I found that to be um, kind of the best route to get best of all worlds. All right, so let's get into the meat of it here. You know, many of our listeners are trainees or surgeons early in their practice. So I, I want to make this the most useful to that to that population. I want you to both try and get in your time machine with me. Pretend it's 2016. I've just arrived in Salt Lake City. If you could go back in time and tell me, give me advice about like what would have been the best way to connect with you as an honor provider? How How is the best way to start off that relationship? So if you're a surgeon new to a practice, new to an area, how do you... How do you best start out to build that bridge with our collaborative on our providers? Um, I can start if you want, Joy. Uh, I've found that 
there, there's probably a couple ways um, that I found has been really particularly helpful. And um, one is in general, like try to find kind of mutual uh, things that help you both mutually. So for example, um, I find in general, surgeons want to do surgery and non-surgeons don't want to do surgery. So kind of uh, finding patients that will be uh, help, you know, the type of patient that I would want to see versus the type of patient that you would want to see and helping to help each other in that sense. And I think knowing like what their interests are, what their capabilities are. And um, that's probably the big thing. I feel like a lot of the surgeons that I've met who are coming in and new um, aren't fully familiar with what, what we do. And uh, once they, they kind of ask those questions, hey, I don't know much about what you do, let me know, um, pretty, pretty quickly it becomes a, a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and I think I can add to that a little bit as well. Um, so really just figuring out what the other person does is probably the most important thing um, to understanding how like that relationship might be beneficial to both of you. Um, and it's really just figuring out who you have maybe access to either within your own group or outside of your group, because I guess it's also possible that maybe when you're in a smaller practice, I think we're a little bit, we're lucky in that we have so many colleagues and collaborators within our own group that do so many different things, but it's possible if you're in a smaller group, there may not be somebody in the group that does something that might be beneficial for you or your patients. So mostly just kind of asking around and seeing, you know, who does what and does anybody have any colleagues even in a different area that, you know, might be uh, interested in some of the topics, some of the research that you're also interested in, and then in some of the clinical entities that you're, you know, that might benefit your patients. I wanted to follow up on that. I think one of the things you said, Dan, that's really interesting is you, and I, and I think it's true that in a lot of academic programs, if they don't have a strong non-operative department, you know, there may not be a lot of interactions and training to learn about, you know, just all the things you guys can, can do for our patients. So I wanted to chat with you first about injections, because that's something I think you both have taught me a lot about. You know, I know that you're both very skilled with the use of ultrasound. It sounds like both of you have done some kind of subspecialty training. Tell us, is that, is, and we'll start with you, Dan, do you, do, is that like a big part of your practice? Is that a big interest of yours? How did you, how did you become interested in that? And then what, how, how, how do you, how do you best receive those referrals or, or how do you best build a relationship around that? Cause I know that's some, a huge thing you do for our patients. Yeah. And are you referring more to, to my side of the fence or your side of the fence? Would you say on that? Your side of the fence. My side. So then to me, I think I, think I would say that um, most non-operative providers, the, one of the challenges is, is it's such a mixed bag, meaning, you know, if, if you're going to be a shoulder surgeon, chances are you did an orthopedic residency. <laughs> if you're going to be a, um, a, a sports medicine provider, you could have done emergency medicine like Dr. English. You could have done PM&R like me. You could have done family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics. There's so many differences between them, and they all carry different things to the table. But across the board, pretty much all of the sports medicine providers nowadays want to do ultrasound. It's just um, it's a it's a valuable tool, and it's a and it's procedural. So because of that, pretty much everybody kind of wants to do that. Um, in terms of kind of showing what we're capable of. The other challenge is that there's a big spectrum in terms of capabilities. Um, so you take Dr. English, who did a full fellowship in just ultrasound. <laughs> She's going to be better than the person who did a, um, didn't even do a fellowship. And so knowing those capabilities can, can be a, a big benefit. 
Um, I think that the, for us, when we talk to the surgeons, it's really helpful to, to know the background. So a good example is, um, you know, if I were to talk to you, Dr. Chalmers, and you were to say, hey, we want to do the suprascapular nerve block for this reason. It's a little atypical. We've got this one special case. That's hugely beneficial for us. And plus, we don't work, off, you know, in your world. And so knowing the background can be pretty helpful. And just kind of establishing that, that kind of mutual um, care of the patient really makes a big difference. And occasionally, it'll just be, can you just inject their glenohumeral joint? Sure. Um, and that's fine, too. Um, we love doing all those. I, I can't speak for Dr. Trinkus, but for me, you name it, <laughs> we love doing it, I feel like, um, when it comes to that sort of thing. And so I think from our side of the fence, anything that's related to injections, diagnostic ultrasound, any of those, they're enjoyable for us. And um, it's just something that we all uh, want to do more of. What do you what do you think, Joy? Yeah, so I guess I think it's just having open lines of communication. And so like uh, Dr. Cushman, like Dan had mentioned, he said, you know, well, maybe I'm really good at this because I did a one year fellowship at ultrasound, but I would say, oh, well, I know that his interest is nerve. So if you have something um, that you're curious to know about, like a suprascapular nerve block for a specific reason or purpose um, or quadrilateral space, I would say he's definitely your go-to person. Um, more general joint injections, maybe that's me. And then I think with diagnostic ultrasound, same thing. The, the training really differs between all of your non-operative providers. And so I think the more experience you have doing ultrasound, maybe those are the people you want to put on your more complex cases. And then just really being open to communication with your non-operative colleagues when you have a case that maybe is a little bit different than usual. Um, I think I was referred somebody not too long ago by Dr. Hajin, um, and the surgical procedure I just was very unfamiliar with. Um, and so I did a fair amount of reading ahead of time, but it's actually just great to sit down with him and talk about what type of transfer he had done and, you know, where he had made his surgical incisions. And that is so helpful rather than just sending somebody down for an ultrasound saying, please check if this is intact or this, you know, make sure nothing has gone awry. They felt a, a snap or a pop. Um, so just being available to communicate, I think, has been really for me, really important in the process. And then I think some of those tough diagnostic scans, those are the things, I don't know, I like the most. I think they're a lot of fun. They help us learn as well. Um, so just figuring out um, kind of who is interested in what and then um, where, what areas are their strengths and maybe what areas are their weaknesses. What and where, where Joy, do you think diagnostic ultrasound most excels in the shoulder and elbow? Like where do you think are the places where maybe it's even the gold standard? That's a great question. Um, and Dan, feel free to chime in at all. Um, I think in a rotator cuff repair, uh, status post-surgery where somebody has an issue, I think it's a really great way to look at the cuff, especially if you're worried about one particular tendon or one particular region. Um, it's also great in the post-operative period for people who develop hematomas and things like that. Um, also really useful when you're concerned about post-operative infection. So being able to look at a space, determine if there's fluid within the space, determine if it's complex or not with ultrasound, and then actually use uh, your ultrasound to help guide your needle um, so that you can aspirate something. I, I think it's 
it's a really useful tool for that. I also really like, um, I think it's the emergency medicine physician in me loves using limited diagnostic ultrasound when I see patients clinically in my office. So maybe they aren't even patients that are being referred to me from our shoulder surgeons, but they're walking in through our acute care clinic um, after attempting to lift something that was a little bit heavy for them, feeling a pop in the anterior elbow. It's really nice to be able to look at their distal biceps tendon and tell them whether or not it's intact. Um, so I use it for limited diagnostic studies all the time, probably much more so than even complete studies, um, and certainly much more than in the post-operative state. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I think the, um, I agree on all that. I think the only thing I'd probably add is, um, I think UCL for the elbow um, is probably um, getting better and better. And as our machines improve, it's kind of like the, just like an MRI, um, you know, as you go up in Tesla, you also can go up in resolution for newer ultrasound machines. Um, and so they're getting better and better. Um, I think that uh, dynamically, so being able to move things can make a big difference in some of these situations um, where you can you can move the shoulder and you can move the elbow and see what's causing that clicking or that popping. Um, I find a lot of times that can be particularly helpful. And then also just cost-wise. So if, um, I'm just thinking of an example, uh, you know, an example would be maybe common extensor tendon tear. Like I've definitely had re uh, referrals for that where um, rather than getting the MRI, you can just do the ultrasound, which is quicker, cheaper, easier, um, even though you could probably get just as good information either way. Um, and that, I think along those lines, one of the, the difficulties kind of in the relationship between the surgeon and the non-surgeon is, um, I, I'd say, just the trust factor, which is, is very important. You know, for example, I feel like surgeons that I've met, they're really good at reading an MRI, not as good at reading an ultrasound. But after they look at enough ultrasounds, suddenly they're seeing it just as well as I am. Um, and so just having that kind of trust at the beginning where they don't look at it and being like, well, does this guy know what he's doing or not? Um, that can be a bit of a challenge. And to be honest, there's a lot of, of non-operative docs that aren't good enough to tell that stuff. And, and ultrasound is, is just rife with um, errors. It's very easy to see things that aren't there. Um, so I, I think that for the diagnostic standpoint, I think it's only going to get better and better, um, but it's also kind of based on experience a lot. Well, you've both certainly taught me a ton about ultrasound and, um, you know, how to use it and where it's, where it's best used. I could not agree with you more that but I think there are, in some ways, the, the ultrasound is better for the UCL than MRI. Um, but as you mentioned, it's technique dependent and you have to learn how to use it and it's a challenge. Let's go back to injections for just a second here. So we went through some injections you guys are doing under ultrasound. Let's start off. What injections can be safely done blindly in the shoulder and the elbow? What do you think, Dan? Which, which injection do you think you could do blindly and it does not require ultrasound? Um, there, there's a little bit of debate over this, but I think I think most people agree subacromial injections really don't need an ultrasound machine. But I feel like as the literature progresses, we're getting more and more evidence that it probably is better to do it under ultrasound guidance. guidance probably probably more responders. Um, glenohumeral, uh, I think it's pretty clear that guidance is um, superior to blind. For suprascapular nerves. Um, I, I can't say I've seen any papers on it, but I believe I, I would be surprised if um, guidance was uh, any inferior to blind. So I would definitely do it guided. Um, the subcoracoid injections, uh, I think you'll probably still do blind. There's been no papers that I've seen on those. Uh, biceps tendon, it, it does seem to be superior to do it guided. 
Um, I feel like those are the majority of them. AC joint um, probably depends on the, the patient. Um, I feel like there are some that can definitely be no problem uh, blind, but then there's definitely, uh, for the larger patients, um, guidance is much easier. What do you think, Joy? I, I have nothing to add to that. Um, the only other place that I think of is in the lateral elbow, like if you're doing a lateral epicondyle injection, I don't know that you necessarily need guidance to do that. Um, but I think intraarticular elbow also been shown to be superior with ultrasound versus a blind technique. Um, I'd say, yeah, medial and lateral epicondyle, I think you could probably do nine guided. Um, but, and I'm not exactly sure the studies on those. Dan, do you know that? For, sorry, for which? Uh, for medial and, lateral up, medial and lateral epicondyle. Yeah, I've never seen a study on that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, now, Joy, you mentioned kind of midway through about your injury clinic, and this is, I know this is a relatively unique experience you've had setting up an injury clinic, you know, first at WashU and now at the University of Utah, and I think it very much comes from your background. So tell us, tell us about the OIC. How does this work? How have you done it? Um, and if someone else was interested to do this, what, what would they need to know? How long do we have? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so yeah. So initially set up um, an orthopedic injury clinic at WashU. Um, essentially, just uh, availability of specialists, um, typically run by non-operative sports medicine providers in the evenings. And then also when I was at WashU, we were open on weekends. Um, and we at University of Utah, this clinic runs Monday through Friday, or sorry, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 8 p.m. on Fridays. We shift our hours a little bit earlier. We haven't moved into weekends as of yet, but I think that at some point we might go there. Um, and just providing after hours uh, specialty care for patients who need it in the evening. And initially was a walk-in clinic. Um, and I think we found it a little bit hard to manage the um, number of patients that would present. And on some days there were, you know, were more patients than on other days and it just became a little bit tricky. And so now it's just a same day scheduled clinic um, running from 4 to 8 p.m. I think we see about 16 patients a night, so about a patient every 15 minutes. Um, it's one of the most fun things that I do. Um, definitely you walk into a very busy clinic every single time, um, but it's often patients with acute injuries or pain less than six weeks old. Um, and yeah, I think the patient population is a really fun population. And with the way that it's run at the University of Utah, it's wonderful because um, all of our non-operative sports medicine providers do at least a night a month. Some do more like a night a week. And then that allows patients that are being seen in the acute care clinic to also follow up then with you um, in your regular sports medicine clinic. So there's great continuity of care. You have access to all of the orthopedic uh, or the University Orthopedic Center resources. Um, and you can kind of tap into those resources. You have the availability of ultrasound, immediate x-ray. Um, and I've even gotten some same-day MRIs, um, especially when we're working a little bit earlier on Fridays. Um, so yeah, just a really great resource for patients, especially if your practice is busy, um, so patients don't have to wait too long for an appointment. And Dan, you do this occasionally too, right? There are there are nights where you ran the OIC. Yeah, definitely, and and my experience has been positive for sure. And I think the other aspect for us is our, um, you know, we have a, a fairly large fellowship program, and it's it's really good for trainees. Um, to see kind of the a, a larger breadth of, of injuries too, and 
Um, in the PM&R world, there's definitely more chronic type injuries. Um, and so it's kind of nice to expose our PM&R trainees, uh, base trainees, to kind of more acute injuries. It seems like the um, one of the huge benefits from the patient's perspective is this would be so much of a better experience than going to the ER. So tell us, Joy, is this, I mean, like you've, been, you've seen this from both sides now. Do you think it's equivalent to an ER experience or do you, are there times where you're like, oh, I wish I had all the resources I had that when I was back in the ER? Yeah, yeah. So I think, I guess I would say I'm biased, but I think it's a superior experience to be in the emergency department. Um, just a, a few things. So typically most of the patients presenting to our injury clinic or the University Orthopedic Center um, don't tend to be extremely ill or sick. Um, and so often you're not sitting next to somebody with a respiratory illness or something like that. Um, and then with our same day scheduled visits, you're being seen right away. So there's almost no wait times whatsoever. It also gets billed as a specialty clinic visit, which often for people is much more reasonable than an ER copay or an ED visit, especially owing like a certain portion of your ED visit. And then really just the continuity of care, being able to follow up with somebody and then also having a specific physician's name that you can call if later on that evening something goes awry, you have questions about something. Um, whereas I think in the emergency department and then also in the urgent care system, sometimes that can be really difficult for patients to navigate. They often leave with a diagnosis. Um, like let's say they have um, a Liz Frank injury. I know this is a shoulder podcast, so I'm sorry to use a foot and ankle example, but you know, they leave with something that they're told, hey, you really need to see somebody within one to two weeks. And then often that's the end of it. And they tell them, here are some resources. You can call some of these people. But often if people are, or physicians are booked out for a period of time, then patients get really worried and concerned that they're not going to be able to follow up in, appropriate, in an appropriate time frame. And this kind of just takes the guesswork out of it for patients. A lot of times we just say, hey, we can't give an appointment tonight, but we'll talk with our foot and ankle providers. We will get you an appointment sometime this week. If you don't hear from us by Tuesday, um, please call us. But, you know, typically we're getting back to people really quickly. And I think that just helps to ease their nerves. Um, so not only is it a more efficient system for their medical problem, but there's less anxiety surrounding um, their medical problem. I just want to say I'm very proud of myself that I managed to get over 60 episodes into the podcast without anyone mentioning those Frank injury. So it's, that's okay. It's okay. We, made it, we made it a long <laughs> way before way. anyone brought it up. So. <laughs> um, so now tell me, one of the things that I think is interesting about this is what you just mentioned, which is the ability of a patient to follow up with that same provider. The patient can reconnect with the same system Certainly, some of the injuries you see then, though, need to be referred to a surgeon. I mean, so there's, you mentioned already, you know, the example of a distal bicep. So a patient comes in, I was lifting something, I felt a pop. You look under ultrasound, you see the biceps is ruptured. Tell us from there, have there been challenges getting that person in? What has been the, what, what is the, the rubric from there? Is it, is it the responsibility of you, the provider, in urgent care to get that, or in, in the OIC to get that person in? Maybe, maybe you could walk us through that, Dan, when you've seen that. How do you get that done? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a little provider dependent, but um, for the most part, and and this kind of adds on to that last question that that Joy elaborated on was, um, someone comes in with that, that distal biceps tendon rupture, we can see it's ruptured. Um, you know, honestly, like with you, Peter, I'll I'll just text you and be like, hey, would you mind getting this patient in? It needs to be done pretty urgently, or send you an email. Uh, other ones might go through kind of a more formal route, 
Um, but I find that in particular, just having those relationships makes it much better. <laughs> At the same time, like if, if there's someone who comes in with a complicated shoulder issue and I'm a little stumped on it, I, I also can call you and be like, hey, what do you think on this? And, and I've obviously done that in the past. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought with where I was going with that. <laughs> but I think that uh, for, that, for that original sizzle biceps tendon rupture, I think that uh, one of the advantages is, I mean, how many times would, would that have gone to urgent care or even the emergency room and then been, oh, that was an elbow strain, um, you know, and, and those types of things. And I think that, that to me is the biggest advantage of all this is that uh, uh, I think it, it's just a little bit higher level, level of expertise. Um, so when, when it goes into the into the injury clinic as opposed to one of those realms, and it doesn't get missed, and, and we've definitely seen many of those where they have gone to urgent care and then they show up two months later with their ruptured distal biceps, and there's not much um, that can be done as simple as it could have been if we would have done it sooner. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, it, the patient who comes in with a diagnosis of an elbow strain, it's it's usually something else. <laughs> That's yep. that's not a that's that's like not a discreet thing. Thankfully, I wanted to move on now, Dan. You have this unique subspecialty interest in caring for like nerve entrapment syndromes in athletes, which I mean, you're really well suited to this given your background. I think these are underdiagnosed. I think in the shoulder field, they're probably more poorly understood than they are maybe in your field. Tell me, how did you get interested in this? What what have you learned that you think shoulder surgeons need to know that we're missing right now? Um, great question. I think I think a couple things with nerves. Um, the the background for me was that um, I just found it interesting, just fascinating that you know the 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 roadways that control our muscles. That's what um, oftentimes kind of limits what we can do. And so you know, in my residency, we do a lot of EMG studies, and I think that's a black box for a lot of surgeons. It's just kind of oh, they did an EMG, and they'll either think one, you can never trust those things, or two. Um, the EMG said this, so therefore I'm going to do this. And, and I find that um, as you get deeper and deeper, just like pretty much anything in medicine, it's never that simple. Um, and so because I do sports medicine, I just ended up seeing a lot of athletes because I see a lot of nerves. And so that's where that marriage kind of came in. Um, specific for the shoulder, I think that there's, you know, it, it's, a, it's definitely different than wrist and hand and foot and ankle because um, shoulders, I think, is a lot bigger picture in a lot of ways where you know, if they have a quadrilateral space syndrome, that's, that's a nerve, but usually the EMG is normal. Or they have suprascapular nerve entrapment that's kind of milder but causes pain, still have a normal EMG. Um, and so I think for the shoulder surgeons, uh, kind of similar to what I had said earlier is um, know who you're dealing with. So there are definitely people who do great EMGs and people who do crappy EMGs, just like, um, just like people who do great rotator cuff repairs and people who don't. Um, and so I think if you, if you can get a good sense of that and particularly just asking around for other people, hey, what's, what's this doc's um, kind of reputation on it, um, I think is good. And experience plays a big role. People who have been doing it longer, it's pretty important. And so, um, you know, for the shoulder, suprascapular nerve, I think is probably the most commonly um, uh, uh, injured nerve, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, axillary nerve. Uh, that that ends up coming to me, and uh, for us, we can we can do some you know procedures. We can do injections and that type of thing in some of the cases, but a lot of times it ends up being surgical. Um, for us, I think one of the big ones we have in our in our tool belt is um, 
you know, uh, paralabel cysts that are impinging the suprascapular nerve. That's that's not an uncommon procedure that we do. That um, you know, sometimes they don't recur and they do quite well. Um, but it's nice to have that that talk with the surgeon about it. Where if it's you know recurring and and they're getting more of an impingement on the nerve and starting to cause axonal injury, um, we want to have um, you know the right thing done for the patient. And so I, I think in the shoulder, the the one other side of things is kind of the the nerve block versus surgical complication, which comes up a lot. Um, was it the anesthesiologist or um, was it something else? And uh, those can be kind of tricky. Um, and I, I think that just politically and um, also just for the patient, but I think just having somebody who's, who's aware of how those nerves are going to recover, um, what type of nerve injury? Was it something that is a myelinating, a demyelinating injury that's going to recover pretty quickly or an axonal injury that, that may or may not, how the nerve was injured, all those kind of things. Um, just having someone else who can, you know, either run those things by or, um, or interact with can be pretty helpful, I think. Yeah, but I think it's been hugely helpful to me in my own practice, as you, as you know, I mean, I, you know, have, have, have sent a lot of patients to you for suprascapular and quadrilateral nerve injections um, to try and figure out, figure it out, is that causing? The, the other thing we've, we've worked through a little bit, and I'm hesitant to bring it up because I know it's uh, uh, a controversial area, but it's a thoracic outlet. I mean, you've helped us with pec minor injections and scalene injections. Tell us about them. I mean, do you think, how, how helpful do you think those things have been in your eyes for those patients? Are they useful diagnostically? Can they be useful as a treatment algorithm for uh, patients with TOS? Yeah, uh, everybody loves TOS, don't they? Um, I feel like the the vascular surgery guidelines, um, I believe now say diagnostic injections are part of their algorithm for figuring this out. Um, in my opinion, with TOS, I, I think it's probably a little more common than people talk about, but I also think it's something that, that's just very hard to diagnose. Um, EMGs are almost always normal in those cases. Um, meaning that they haven't completely damaged the nerve, that type of thing. And, I, and it also tends to have some overlay involved where people are just very sensitive. They have sensitive nerves. Um, but I do find that um, the injections can be very helpful. Um, there, there's probably two methods. One is um, just as a diagnostic tool. So you, you inject a scalene muscle and the pain goes away 90%. I feel like that's telling me something. Um, the second is uh, Botox. So this is also a little controversial. There was one randomized control trial that showed it didn't really help, but then many, many other uh, non-randomized trials that do seem like it helps. Um, in my opinion, when it comes down to doing a scalenectomy versus surgery, uh, sorry, a scalenectomy versus Botox, um, usually I would say err on the side of doing Botox because for many patients it does provide significant relief. And the same thing goes with pec minor. So, in, you know, uh, doing a pec minor release, Botox, diagnostic injection, I find they can be very helpful to help delineate what's going on um, in a very challenging thing to diagnose. Certainly, I found that patient population to be, to be challenging, and we've appreciated your help diagnostically. As you mentioned, it can be a difficult thing to nail down. Um, we're, we're nearing the end here. Is there anything else that I've missed? Other things that you wish you know, if, if you could speak to the shoulder surgeons of the world and tell them something that we don't know that you guys know, what, what else, what else do we need to know? What do you think, Joy? I guess I might just elaborate on something that Dan talked about just a couple of minutes ago. 
I think Dan and I use injections diagnostically all the time, maybe even more so than a lot of other physicians. And partly I think it's just because it's a big majority of what we do in the office. And so maybe we're a little less hesitant to go ahead with a diagnostic only injection. Um, but I think for our, uh, for the surgeons, if you aren't sure about something or if it is a pain generator or if there, you have a couple of things on your differential and your imaging is telling you one thing, but the history is telling you something else and the exam is telling you something different, sometimes using your non-operative colleagues to help you with diagnostic-only injections can sometimes just point you in the right direction as to their specific pain generator. Um, so I think just, you know, I think using your non-operative colleagues to help with diagnosis um, just using it as one more tool outside of just imaging, just exam or history, I think can be really useful. Oh, it's just a phenomenal point. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more that that's usually my next move if I can't figure out what to do next is send them for an injection and see if I can get a winner. What What are your thoughts, Dan? Anything else you wish the rest of us knew that we don't know? Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of the time the, the hardest part is, is not knowing what you don't know. Um, and, you know, on, on our side of the fence, I feel like for us, what Joy alluded to earlier about learning more about kind of the more complicated surgeries that we don't see that much is really helpful for us. I think um, the flip side of that is um, don't be afraid to ask. Just be like, hey, you know, what about doing this? Can I inject into the, del the, the deltoid insertion? You know, as an example of something, we can give you an answer on that. Um, the reality is if, if it's in skilled hands, we can get a needle really just about anywhere with ultrasound outside of the spine. Um, and so it, it can be helpful, but there are, are also cases where I would say, um, you know, we can do that, but it's not going to help you answer the question you want to an answer. Um, so I think number one would be um, just ask. Like that definitely makes a big difference. Um, number two would be uh, for the, the surgeon who has not looked at much ultrasound, um, I would strongly recommend looking at a few images with the non-operative provider. Um, like I said, it's just not that complicated. If you can look at cross-sectional imaging on an MRI, you can look at cross-sectional imaging on an ultrasound, and that's all it is. And so after you see a few of those, suddenly um, things become a lot more apparent, and I find that um, the more of those that you see, the easier. So usually with my surgical colleagues, especially the ones who, who are, are new here, I'll, oftentimes I can include a picture of it and point out what I'm looking at, and I bet it can be really helpful for everybody. Um, there's been many times that I have been in the same room as one of the surgeons, and we kind of go over it together, and um, either one of us will figure it out where I will say, I don't know what that thing is, but it's not supposed to be there, and the surgeon will be like, oh, that's because it's an anchor, or you know, something to that effect. Um, and, and I find that that mutual uh, collaboration makes all the difference. Well, thank you so much, so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Um, and I think that a lot of our listeners are going to find it helpful. This is about all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you again to our guests. For all of our Sheldon Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.